Friends, if you could turn to the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament, chapter 8, it's page number uh, uh, 750, if you have a pew Bible. So, uh, Nehemiah, we were in the Psalms a moment ago, and if you go to the Psalms and turn left, a few books, you'll come to Nehemiah. And uh, Nehemiah is reading the, the law to the uh, people who have returned from Babylonian captivity. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 8, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, and at his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malkijai, Malkijah, Hashim, Hasbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Israel opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Israel blessed the Lord, the great God, Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed down their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces (coughs) to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodijah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Joes, Abad, Hanan, Pilaliah, and the Levites, Help the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those who, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that there were that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain, 
and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day the children of Israel had not, until that day the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast, uh, they kept the feast seven days. <clears throat> and on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Amen. And I'd like you to turn in the New Testament to uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. So Second Timothy uh, chapter 3. So if you've got Second Timothy 3, we'll break into the chapter at verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned, been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Amen. I think it was a, a few weeks ago, wasn't it? We looked at uh, Scripture being sufficient for salvation. I was going up, going to move on this evening to the other two points: uh, Scripture sufficient for transformation and proclamation. Uh, but these things being tremendously important issues. And upon reflection, I hadn't really addressed all that needed to be addressed under the first point to the level that uh, really it needs to be uh, dealt with. So rather than rush to a conclusion of Second Timothy, I suggested that a couple of weeks ago I said we'd park on these verses uh, for a few weeks and then move on. Uh, we'll keep them to the parking analogy. Just let's get out of the car, set ourselves in the grass and... Uh, taking the challenge and breathtaking scenery of verses 15 through 17, certainly maybe up to maybe Christmas at least, um, you will notice in verse 15 that it says that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, scripture is sufficient for salvation, and then in verses 16 and 17, they are sufficient for uh, transformation, obviously being profitable for doctrine or proof, correction and instruction in righteousness. Those are the, uh, uh, the, the things which the word of God does, which uh, scripture produces. 
And then when we get into chapter 4, we'll see that they are sufficient for proclamation. That, that is still the direction of travel. But I want to take uh, time and put the brakes on because although this is pretty basic stuff, it is pretty important stuff. Now, by way of general introduction, the distinguishing characteristic of uh, Otten Park Baptist Church since the days of John Beatty, and it continued through Fal Hall, and God willing, it has continued uh, with myself and with your brother, fellow elder John Palmer. Uh, the distinguishing characteristic is a very, very strong commitment to the authority of the word of God. We are definitely historically and presently a church committed to God's word. We endeavor to teach God's word, to preach God's word, to implement God's word. We want to live God's word, to proclaim God's word. We want to exalt God's word is the focal point of everything that we do. Uh, when God speaks, we listen and we obey. Now, I, I would say we hit the buffers on that a few years ago, but certainly in the providence of God, it was a wake-up call to the, to the church, not just to the church, but churches um, across the, uh, the Western world. You know, if you think the... The number of times in those letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you have the repeated phrase of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, if you have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he's saying, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have to be a church that listens to the word of God. That's imperative. We have to be a church that is committed to the word of God, that is submissive to the word of God. And the focal point of our ministry has been, God willing, will be, with whoever follows myself, will be the scripture. There are many things that a a church can do. There are obviously many uh, things a church can focus on, many things that a church can camp on. But for Ourselves, certainly for all of these years, it has been the word of God. Our church, our personal lives are dominated by the word of God. Week in, week out, we want to teach the Bible. And here in the services, we preach the Bible, as you know, in an expository fashion. We begin at the beginning of one uh, book and we work our way through to the end of it, explaining, seeking to explain its meaning. We go through scripture after scripture after scripture. And the reason for that is because we understand what scripture does. What does scripture do? Well, let me remind you of a very important promise with regard to this that again is found in the <coughs> prophecy to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, 
so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, friends, God says, when I send my word, it always does its work. It never comes back empty. You know, just like the rain and the snow produces what grows, my word says God produces my will. My, uh, the Bible is God's messenger. It accomplishes his will. It accomplishes his purpose. The word of God is depicted for us, and I guess there's many uh, passages we could turn to just to show how the word of God is depicted. But certainly in Psalm 147, verse 15, the word of God is depicted as a swift messenger. It says he sends out his command to the earth, his word runs very swiftly. My brothers, sisters, do you see the picture? It runs to do God's work. It runs to accomplish God's goals. As God sends the cold and frost and the sun and all the natural elements to produce what he wants to produce naturally, so he sends his word. And it goes out to produce the ends that God has intended for it. The word of God is productive. And as we began to see last time, the word of God is sufficient for salvation. The word of God produces salvation. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation, which, of course, you know, comes through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The thing that he says uh, there is the word, the Holy Scriptures. That's what uh, God uses to produce salvation. It's the instrument of salvation. Now, I want to reinforce uh, this truth by looking at the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, so if you go back to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 5, we have the, obviously in John's Gospel, the continual teaching of Jesus about the power of his word and the word of God. And in John chapter 5, verse uh, 24, okay, we, we read this. This is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 5, 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. My beloved, that verse binds up the essence of this glorious gospel that we delight to proclaim, believing in God, the God who sent Christ, and hearing the word brings eternal life and delivers one from judgment, passing from death into life. And the, and the, the note, uh, and note the key to it all. He who hears my word, he who hears my word, the word is the agency. 
The word is that which begets new life. And God, the Holy Spirit, uses it to bring about conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Here in chapter 5, if you just look on into the next chapter, chapter 6, uh, towards the end of the chapter, you know that Jesus, in chapter 6, he's been teaching on the bread of life. And in John 6, verse 63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And then this. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. And if they haven't affected that in you, then verse 64 implies that's because some of you don't believe. So you see the word mixed with faith, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit produces life. If you flick forward another few chapters to uh, John chapter 12, in verse 49 to 50, again, the words of Jesus. John 12, 49 and 50, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority. You see, even the man, Christ Jesus, operated under delegated authority and operated by speaking only that which was the word of God he said but the father who sent me give me a command what I should say and what I should speak and I know what his command is everlasting life therefore whatever I speak just as the father has told me so I Speak. Again, Jesus is articulating the reality that the word, you know, is that which produces eternal life. You know, the word brings life. And obviously there are other texts that we could look at. Could look at other gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um But within John's gospel, certainly uh, the sum of it all comes in the first, uh, the great verse in chapter 20, verse 31, which really gives us the reason why John wrote the whole gospel in the first place. John 20, 31, but these, these are written that you may have, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You see, eternal life comes by believing. Believing what the written word says. Says about ourselves and the fall and our need of redemption. Believing what the word says about the promised Messiah. That eternal life comes through, you know, the revealed word, the word of God. You see how scripture is the source of that truth, which brings salvation. It introduces us to Jesus, who is the redeemer, Jesus, who is the savior. And certainly looking further into the New Testament, uh, in Romans chapter 10, 
we find the Apostle Paul was committed to exactly the same truth. So if you have your Bibles open and it's a bit cold tonight and you want a wee bit of warmth, you can just flick through to Romans chapter 10, get a bit of movement. But I want you to see how this you know, same truth is conveyed. Uh, Romans 10 verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, again, it's the word of God that is sufficient for salvation. It's the word of God that produces salvation. It says back there in verses uh, 13 and 15, Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And so you see, again, beloved, it's emphasized that Scripture is the source. And Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians, in Thessalonians uh, 2, verse 13, in the first Thessalonians 2, 13, um, he refers to the work of Scripture. He says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. And you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You see, salvation occurs when you have a ready heart. And what I mean by a ready heart is a heart that has been prepared by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit, you know, God takes the initiative, God moves first. And God uh, starts to work in the heart, sometimes even before we're aware of it, to uh, uh, prepare that heart to receive the word. And uh, salvation occurs when you have a ready heart that is open to, to believe, mixed with the revelation of God's word, that yes, this is true. And uh, it can fix me. You see, the word of God is a, already in the heart. That's the issue. And James refers uh, to the same dynamic. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Scripture is the word of God. It's the source of salvation. That's why... Paul in Philippians 2 verse 16 calls it the word of life. It is characterized as that which gives life, spiritual life, true life, abundant life. The scripture is sufficient for salvation. Isn't that what uh, Psalm 19 verse 7 says? And we sang a little part phrase of Psalm 19 in, uh, in our third hymn. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or restoring the soul. There is a tremendous illustration of that in the book of Nehemiah, hence our reading tonight from Nehemiah chapter 8. And so if you still got a little marker in your Bible, you can turn back to uh, Nehemiah 8 for a moment. In Nehemiah 8, we really have the beginning 
of a real revival. In the word of God coming and rushing through them. And uh, I say though, the law of the Lord that they were reading, as it says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting, restoring the soul. So, if you have Nehemiah chapter 8 before you again, uh, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And there are just uh, three little words there to draw to your attention. Bring the book. You know, that, that's key to the whole thing. You know, bring the word of God. Bring the Bible. Verse 2 and 3. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And and they stood there. They stood there and listened to the word of God being proclaimed hour after hour after hour. You know, try and get people to listen to the word of God read and proclaim, you know, for half an hour in this generation in which we live, we think we're doing well. You know, and here are people at this time as revival is breaking out hour after hour after hour after hour. They are standing and they are listening to the word of God being being read. It's a wooden platform built for Ezra to stand on. Standing here tonight on a platform not to exalt the preacher. It's to exalt the word, isn't it? The the word is primary. And uh, the word has to be heard. The word is central. The focus is on on the word as it's being, being proclaimed. And they built a platform for Ezra to stand on. Verse 4 says... Uh, was set up for that purpose. In verse 6, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, by lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verses 7 and 8 says that as they read distinctly from the book of the law, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Sabathiah, Hodijah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, give the sense and help them to understand the reading. You see, it had to go from... Um, Hebrew into Aramaic, which was the common language, had to be explained uh, to them. And so they were reading and explaining the word, and the people's response was absolutely amazing, wasn't it? It tells us at the end of verse 9, all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They were grieved 
over their sin. They were struck because of the the dearth of the law of God in their hearing. And the end result of all this was the people really drew their hearts back to God. Then the end of verse 18, it says they kept the feast, Feast of Tabernacles, seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assemble, uh, assembly according to the prescribed manner. You take time later and go on into uh, chapter 9, you see that the people begin to praise God as a result of this you know, reading of the word of God and their hearing, being convicted. Uh, they now you know, want to you know, praise God. They were praising, lifting up uh, their voices in adoration to the God who had revealed himself to them in scripture. Uh, they were getting their hearts right uh, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Down in uh, verse uh, 29 of chapter 10, if you read on through uh, the little book of Nehemiah, you, know, you have in chapter 10 that long list of names uh, of the folks who signed the, the document. And it says in verse 29, these people entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, a servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. You see, beloved, the net result was the people made a commitment to God. You see, Scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, we've got the full revelation of God, obviously, but you know, Scripture is sufficient for salvation. And through that seven-day feast, there was a great movement of God, and many folks were uh, were saved, if you like. Uh, there was that revival, and it was a direct result of simply standing and reading, hour after hour after hour, and translating, explaining the Scripture. It has the power to convert the soul. Power to save. Forward again into the New Testament for another illustration. Let's go to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter chapter 8, in which, again, the Lord is teaching. And it's that uh, familiar parable, which makes the same major point that I've been driving at uh, through this sermon tonight. Jesus in the opening of the chapter, there he is teaching uh, the parable of the sower, the seed and the soils. You're all familiar with it. In verses 5 and 8 of Luke 8, it says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air, the air defarred it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he said, You better listen to what I'm telling you. And then in verse 9, they asked him what it was he was talking about. 
And then from verse 11, he starts to explain. He says the, uh, the parable, in the parable, the seed is the word of God. That which produces new life is good soil, is the, that which produces new life in good soil is the word of God. That's the picture. That's the analogy that he's using. That's the point. And so he's saying, if the soil isn't right, you're not going to get the product. So if the, the soil is, uh, is too hard, like the soil on the road, then it's like those who have hard hearts. And he says, it's like, you know, the devil comes and as soon as the seed uh, is the, of the word is sown, Satan steals it immediately, you know, lest, uh, lest people be saved. And people's hearts are so hard, you know, it's just like, you know, falling in that hard path and it just bounces, it bounces off. And there's those on the rocky soil, those who have uh, received the word, they, well, it appears that uh, they're saved, they've received the word with joy, but then it, it's revealed over a period of time. It has no firm root. They believe for a little while, but the temptations, you know, come in and they just fall away. And then there's the seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who, again, appear to have a, a modicum of life. They've heard the word and they go on their way rejoicing, but then they're it's like they are choked with the worries, the riches, the concerns, the pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. The word of God will fall into places where the soil is not ready. It's hard. It's full of weeds, full of rocks. But verse 15, when the seed falls into good soil, those are the ones who have heard the word and they've heard it with a noble and a good heart and they keep it and they bear fruit with patience see what you have here is the word of God that's placed in a readied heart, a prepared heart that produces salvation the practical implications of this are obvious beloved aren't they, isn't it the heart and the soul the heart and the soul of our evangelistic ministry must be the word of God. You know, when Jesus was asked by a lawyer in Luke uh, chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to the man, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? He tells him, you go back to the scriptures. See what the Bible says. And you can go back to the Old Testament, those holy scriptures, and they are sufficient to make you wise unto salvation, as Paul writes to Timothy, which, of course, has come in the fullness of time. You know, that Christ has come. He has accomplished everything that was prophesied concerning the Messiah. And what does scripture say? Scripture says, Jesus, they speak of me. Scriptures speak of a Redeemer. Speak of a Messiah who comes to, to seek and to save the lost. And then one very explicit text, just to conclude, from 1 Peter 1, 23. Peter writes, You have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible 
through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And there's the picture, the analogy again of the seed. The seed, again, is the word of God. It's a seed that is placed in good soil that produces salvation. So again, let me just emphasize, if we want to be effective in evangelism, we have to be faithful in teaching and proclaiming, you know, God's word. If you want to be effective in reaching uh, your friends, give them God's word. Yeah, I know if you, if you know somebody who, who's not saved, yeah, the best thing, the first thing you should do, maybe is just to give them, give them a Bible. And don't get too, you know, too concerned with uh, feeling inadequate because you can't explain every theological issue. You, you don't need to be able to explain every theological issue. You don't need to have all the answers to all the questions. You know, the Bible's enough. You know, the Bible is sufficient for salvation. People read it. The entrance of God's word will bring light. So in evangelism, we want to give people God's word. It's that simple. It's that basic. Somebody might say, well, you know, Billy, you've been doing this, you know, since you arrived in the place uh, with little visible results. Is it not about time you tried something else? No, (laughs) there can never be. There will never be anything else because this is what's mandated. We're to be instant in season and out of season. You know, when it's popular, when it's not popular, preach the word. I know I'm sort of running ahead of myself there in relation to the word being sufficient for proclamation. But beloved, this is what brings salvation. And let us have confidence in it. And let us delight in it. This is God's word to us. The um, the guys who were speaking at the SGA conference, and with this I'll conclude, uh, two guys from Kazakhstan, he was sharing with us about you know this Bible project that they're having you know, to get uh, the Word of God, uh, what has been printed in the Kazakh, and they're getting it you know distributed among uh, the people in Kazakhstan. And he was saying he pulled up at a um, petrol station, he had a Bible in the car, the wee petrol attendant, he had a fit photograph of him. Uh, he, he gave him a copy of the Bible, Kazakh Bible. And the wee petrol attendant said, what's this? And uh, Pavel said, it's, uh, it's God's word. And the man went, wow. God's word. And he kissed it. It's God's word. Man had never had God's word in his own tongue before. Just blew him away. And he turned up the following week, asked him, well, you know, did you read that? He says, I've started to read it. And he says, what did he say? I'm halfway through, halfway through the New Testament. So, so he's reading it. You know, we have had the word of God in our own mother tongue for so many centuries. For some of us, maybe it's lost the wow factor. We need to get back to, wow, this is God speaking to me. And this is sufficient for salvation.